they have a Merry Christmas. This morning, I want to talk to you, if anybody ever asks you, what is the traditional Christmas story? We know, of course, that that is found in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke 2 with me this, this morning, please. And, of course, this is also the fourth Sunday in Advent, and the theme of the fourth Sunday in Advent each year is the theme of joy. And so I want to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, Joy to the World, the Lord Has Come. Would you stand with, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please? Luke chapter 2, and I'll be reading uh, from verses 1 down to verse 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Father, I pray that through your word that you would be pleased to speak to us today. Lord, we need, we, we need joy in the world. We need the good news of Christ. And we thank you that that is what you have given us in Messiah. We've a story to tell to the nations, a story that is not merely good entertainment, but that is truth from God, a story that changes lives. 
God, I pray that someone here today might be changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, folks, there are a couple of occasions in the Scripture where God came down to people in a theophany. He came down and revealed himself in a great way. And people were allowed to see some aspect of his power and his grace that they'd not seen before. I think of an occasion in the book of Genesis with, with Jacob. When Jacob is ready, getting ready to go out and meet his brother Esau. And you remember the details of that story. He is scared to death of meeting his brother Esau because of the way he tricked his brother out of the birthright. And so now years and years have gone by and he's about to have a reunion with his brother and he's scared to death. And Jacob is still that old trickster. He's a deceiver. And he gets along with God one night. He sends his family away. He gets along with God out in the wilderness. And Genesis 37 tells us that he wrestles with God, the angel of the Lord, all night. And he emerges from that a changed man. And God gives him a new name, Israel. He goes from the trickster or the deceiver, the heel grabber, grabber to one who is a prince with God. I think also of when Samson was born. And the angel of the Lord came and announced to his mother that she was going to give birth to a very special child. And the dad was not around. And when he talked to his wife, then he went to God in prayer and he prayed that he might be allowed to see the same theophany that his wife saw. And in his grace and goodness, God allowed Manoah to see that as well. And Manoah and his wife were giving an offering to the Lord and they presented it there. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord went up in the flames and the smoke and of course, Manoah said, we've seen God, we're going to die. And his wife says, no, if we were going to die, he wouldn't have given us the promise that we're going to have a mighty son who was going to be a judge in Israel. Folks, I think of these times in the Bible, few and far between, when God came and appeared to people in special ways. But I'm here to tell you this morning, none of those ways can even begin to compare to what we read about in Luke chapter 2. When the angels come and announce to the shepherds that God is going to send his only begotten son, the Messiah, son of God and son of man, a descendant of David, He's going to be Savior and will bring great joy. There's no appearance of God that has ever equaled what God did in Christ. Amen? Because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Can you imagine being a shepherd out in the fields by night, keeping your flocks, and, and you hear the angel come and make this announcement to you? 
It's an announcement that will forever change the world. It is a message of joy to the world because the Lord has come. Think about, think about this. God, who is transcendent, who's out there and seems so removed from us, and his son Jesus becomes so imminent, so near. He's God with us. It's staggering to think about what's taking place here. God coming into humanity. Remember, Jesus is fully God, but in the incarnation, he's also becoming fully man. He has existed eternally with the Father. There's never been a time that he did not exist. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that tells us that Bethlehem was not the beginning of Jesus. Bethlehem was only the beginning of his humanity. What an amazing event we're allowed to witness here. Let's see how it all unfolds. First of all, I want you to notice with me this morning, we see the providence of God giving you and me today the assurance that God is involved in all aspects of our lives. Write down verses 1 to 5 outside of that. I won't take time right now to read those verses again. But what I do want to call your attention to is the fact that God is in charge of all of these arrangements. Without a doubt, we see the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in these arrangements. It's incredible. I think of Paul's words in Galatians 4 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Think of Paul's phrase there, the fullness of time. And then come back and link that up with what Luke is telling us here in these first five verses. Folks, God is arranging all of this with this registration for taxation purposes. It was a difficult track, track for Joseph and Mary of, of some 80 miles. And they would have traveled 80 miles walking and riding a donkey and all of this while Mary was nine months pregnant. Now in verse 2, Luke is careful to set the historical context for us. Now you may note in your study Bible notes that, that this verse might appear to present us with a problem, but it doesn't. You see, there are some difficulties about the rulers here and about Quirinius. And if you have a college student, that college student might come home if they've taken Religion 101 at college and, and they come home at Christmas and they tell you that Luke's not right here, but actually Luke is right here. And there's some very good explanations why Luke is, is being a very accurate historian here. Luke is careful to ensure the readers, to ensure them of all the facts. 
and to get them to understand that the birth of Jesus is rooted at a very definite time in history. In other words, Luke is being careful that his readers were, would understand this is not some fairy tale that, that he's recording here. This is historical happenings. And anybody alive at that time, knowing the, the people that Luke talks about in, in these first verses, they would have known Luke is rooting this all in definite history at that time. Can you imagine, though, the anxiety that Joseph and Mary must have felt about this census? They would have had no choice but to go and register. After all, Caesar Augustus himself, the Roman emperor, has decreed it. He's the head honcho, right? He's in control, right? He's demanding all of this. He's executing all this. He's the one in charge, right? No, he's not in charge at all. God's in charge. Folks, we need to remember what the scripture says in Proverbs 21, that the heart of a king is in the Lord's hand, and the Lord is able to direct it whichever way he wants the king to go. God is using this emperor and this decree to bring about this whole setting. This census was simply God's way of getting Mary in the right place at the right time for Jesus to be born. God is fulfilling his word. Remember what we covered a couple of weeks ago out of Micah chapter 5? The scripture had prophesied 700 years earlier that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah. Micah 5 2 says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That was a prophecy that was so specific. As I told you several weeks ago, there were two Bethlehems. Bethlehem Ephratah that was close to Jerusalem. The other was up north in Galilee. And so eight centuries before the birth of Jesus Christ, God said it would be in Bethlehem Ephratah. Bethlehem means house of bread. The one who is the bread of life was born in the place referred to as the house of bread. God waited all through human history until this precise time, the fullness of time. They spoke of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because Rome was so powerful at that time, the superpower. There was a peace that they brought to the world through strength. No one dared to want to take on Rome. And so there was a worldwide peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And Rome had built great highways and roadways. They even had an amazing 
postal system probably would rival anything that we have today. They had a common language, Koine Greek. Never before had the world been so connected and so tied together. We talk about today how the world is tied together through the internet and, and speedy travel with airplanes and so forth. But folks, I want you to understand that by the first century, Rome had tied the world together, I mean, as much as any superpower could back then. Well, what's the significance of all that? God designed things this way in the fullness of time so that when he sent his son, it might have been quiet and almost in a secretive place, but the good news of Jesus would not remain quiet. God has set things up in the world at this time in history so that the early church and the apostles could get the good news of Jesus Christ around the world at that particular time. You see how amazing it is that how God is orchestrating all of this? It is the providential hand of God at you know, Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar, and he was the first Caesar, by the way, to be called Augustus, which means holy or revered. It was a title reserved for the gods, the Romans thought. One inscription even called him the savior of the world. They wanted to make their emperor God. And so here was this Augustus making his political decree, acting like he thinks he's God, while all the time he's just a pawn in the hands of the true and the living God. Amen? And the irony of it all, here's a man, a king, trying to, Act like God, and here's the true God who is clothing himself in flesh to become a man. The contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus here is profound. There, there's a huge contrast being set up. Well, Joseph and Mary, they finally arrive in Bethlehem, and of course we know the story, every motel and in, in and Bethlehem has a no vacancy sign out front. Actually, being a small village, they would have had one inn, and that's what the text says. The inn, there was no room in the inn. And so where was Jesus born? Well, he, we know he was laid in a manger, which was made out of wood, in some cases stone. It was a feed box for cattle and livestock. And that's why we assume that Jesus was born in a barn. You look at most nativity scenes today that you have in your home, and it's a wooden stable. But in all likelihood, when you, when you look at the way things were done around Bethlehem at the time, there would be small underground caves, sometimes underground, sometimes level with ground, but underground caves or a room where they would leave their livestock in at night 
to keep them safe. If you go to the traditional site today of the birth of Jesus, they will lead you. There's the Church of the Nativity built over that site today, but you'll go down some steps and go down into this big inner room there where they would have kept their livestock at night. That's where Jesus was born, humbly. And think about the providence of God in all why did he do it this way, so humbly? From man's perspective, Joseph and Mary were nobodies. They were peasants from a nowhere place. And God's arrangements, why did he orchestrate things this way? He did so in order to identify with us. Write down 2 Corinthians 8 9. That verse says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. A well-known pastor out of California from a generation ago, he's gone to be with the Lord now, Ray Stedman, he writes, and I quote here, now you would think that if God so rules the world as to use an empire-wide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, he surely could have seen to it that a room was available in the inn. Yes, he could have. And Jesus could have been born also into a wealthy family. He could have turned stone into bread in the wilderness. He could have called 10,000 angels to his aid in Gethsemane. He could have come down from the cross and saved himself. The question is not what God could do, but what he willed to do. God's will was that though Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The no vacancy signs over all the motels in Bethlehem were for your sake. For your sake he became poor. God rules all things, even motel capacities, for the sake of his children. The Calvary Road begins with a no vacancy sign in Bethlehem and ends with the spitting and scoffing and the cross in Jerusalem. Now, folks, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in all this ought to say something to you and me today. If God can arrange things like this in such precise detail, in fulfillment of prophecy that was given eight centuries before, don't you think he can look after every detail in your life? Paul says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. As I've told you before, the scripture's not saying there that everything is good. Because there are evil things in this world. Look at some of the chaos going on. But, but the scripture is saying, through it all, God can sovereignly, providentially work through all of the circumstances of your life, even those things in your life that you wish you could look back on and change if you had the power to do so. God is weaving together a tapestry of your life so that your life will ultimately be to his praise and glory. He is a sovereign 
providential God. And that's what we see in these first five verses about how God is engineering everything. Folks, I want you to understand this Christmas season. God's not removed from you. God, you might say, does, does God not see what I'm going through? Does God not see what I'm experiencing? Yes, he does. And the unseen hand of God is there at work. You can be assured of that. We don't just see it in this one story here. We see it all through the Bible, the unseen hand of God. Second thing I want you to see with me this morning. We see the proclamation of the angel assuring people then and now of the good news of the incarnation. No child born into the world that day would have seemed to have any lower prospects. Dr. Kent Hughes writes, if we imagine Jesus was, was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. He says it was wretched. It was scandalous. There would have been the stench of manure in that stable or in that cave. And, and yet, look at the clarity in the announcement. No greater birth has ever occurred. And look at who God delivered it to. The shepherds. That was no accident either. Folks, shepherding was very important in Jewish life. They were shepherds. Families would be shepherds, but also they would have professional shepherds who would keep large flocks, and they were, they were kind of like nomads, and they would wander from town to town and village to village and, and field to field. And then it's also believed that there were shepherds around the fields of Bethlehem who actually worked for the temple. Because what constantly took place at the temple? Sacrifices, animal sacrifices. And so the temple itself would employ shepherds out and around the fields around Bethlehem to provide sheep that would be used in the temple for sacrifice. I want you to think with me about that. If that's the case here, then, then God is revealing to these shepherds who provide sacrifices at, at the temple. He's saying, I'm going to show you one today who is the true lamb. And he let the shepherds be some of the first to see that. They were the lowly. They could also be despised in certain instances back then because the professional shepherds who kept the large flocks who went from field to field, village to village, they would kind of scavenge off of the land, whatever they found. If you were a farmer or a herdsman yourself in that area and professional shepherds with their large flocks came to town, you better make sure you had everything locked away. They, you might, they might leave, and when they left, you'd find out some of your own stuff was gone with them. They were highly valued in society, and they were also despised by some. A dichotomy there. 
And they were not even allowed to testify in court because living out in fields, they couldn't do all the ritual cleansing that was necessary to be able to go into a courtroom and, and be seen as being clear, clean and purified enough to give testimony. And again, think what God is doing here. God is giving the best news the world has ever known. To those who are the lowly, the outcast. What's he showing? He's showing that his son is not just for the rich and the powerful and those who have wealth and positions in life. He sent his son to be good news for all. Even those who feel like they don't belong anywhere. Could anybody love me? Yes, God loves you. And look at the message he gave to them. The, the message is, do not fear. I mean, you see this angelic appearance and all coming to you, and not what you're going to be struck with fear, and that's what the shepherds were. They were struck with fear. But the announcement is, do not fear. There's a lot of fear today, isn't there? A lot of fear in 2020. Fear of living, fear of dying. Think about 2020. Never before have people been so fearful of just being around other people. You don't believe it? Just walk the wrong way down the grocery store aisle and look at some of the looks, snarls you're going to get. Everybody's afraid. There's fear. But folks, with Jesus in control of our lives... Ultimately, there doesn't have to be fear. He's the Lord of life, the Lord of death. Should the best happen or the worst happen, we don't have to fear. We can have faith in God. If all of your hope rests in a fallen world, there's going to be fear. But if your hope rests in a Savior who can not only save you, but will one day deliver this world, you don't have to live in fear about everything. It's also a proclamation of good tidings of great joy. Even in the midst of a dark world at the time, Roman oppression, God was announcing an occasion of great joy. Because of a baby, the Savior of the world, there would be joy. Everyone thought taxation was the big news, this census. But a young Jewish woman, probably not more than 15 or 16 years of age, held in her arms the greatest news of all, the birth of a Savior. And why is there such joy in that? Because as Matthew 1 tells us, God says this one will be the one who will forgive you of all of your sins. Is there sin in your life? Of course there is. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes that sin may weigh you down, may have you downcast, depressed. But guess what? In Christ and through Christ, all of your sin is nailed to the cross and you can be forgiven. And you can have the joy in your heart of knowing that you're right with God and you're at peace with God. That ought to bring joy. 
And also the fact that he's Emmanuel, God with us. You're not alone in this world. You're not trekking through this world alone. He is with you. In fact, Isaiah 9 calls him the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And Isaiah says, of his government, there will be no end. There can be joy over the birth of this child. And again, notice what this joyful joy, this message of fear not, and there's joy to the world. It's not because God is giving some kind of new law or even sending another prophet. But it's because God is giving his son. He's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And lastly, and I'll be quick here, we see the promise of God fulfilled with the shepherds finding things just as God said. You read this story, they said, let's go and investigate. They did, and guess what? Everything was exactly the way the angel told them they would find it. And you know, that shouldn't surprise us one bit because we serve a God who keeps his word. He's immutable, he's unchanging, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he has promised in his word, he will do. You can take it to the bank. Imagine the confirmation this would have been for Mary. I mean, ladies, just think a moment. You've received this news nine months earlier, you're going to have this child. He's going to be the son of David, God's son. And you know you've never been with a man. He's conceived, you're born of a virgin. There's all that expectation in your pregnancy. And then the birth happens this way. There's not even a place for you, a, a decent place. You, you have to be in a, in, a, in a cattle stall area and place your baby in a manger. Probably doubts would have been in your mind. Is this child really special after all? And then all of a sudden these shepherds come flooding in. And they're telling you and Joseph about this angel that's appeared to them. And this news would have been confirmation, further confirmation to Mary. And then after seeing Jesus, look, look what happens. It changes their lives. They go out and they witness. They make known what was shown to them. There's meditation. Mary pondered all of these things in her heart and treasured them. And there's praise. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God. And folks, shouldn't that be our response today about the coming of Jesus? Witness. Meditation and praise. That ought to be our response today and every day. When we think about what God has done for us. God didn't have to send his son. He doesn't have to speak to us. The fact that he has, that ought to change everything. The best news in the world today that you'll ever hear is the Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. He changes everything. 
to challenge you this Christmas season to ponder what God's done. The Word became flesh so He could go to the cross and die for you, the just for the unjust. Again, I want to emphasize to that somebody here today. We don't, in the church, we don't just focus on Jesus as a baby. He grew to be a man, a sinless man, who went to Calvary's cross, and there on the cross, he took all of the wrath of God against sin, and he died in your place, and he died in my place, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. I want you to reflect on that this Christmas season. Ponder what God did to save you from your sin. Or are you careless about sin in your life? The events of Christmas ought to be a testimony to us not to live carelessly. But to be very thoughtful and careful how we live for God's glory. Live your life telling others and praising God for his unspeakable gift. Each of us ought to live with a deep-seated joy over what God has done for us in Christ. Don't live in fear, but rejoice because the Lord has come. And he ascended back to the Father, and one day he's coming again. And all that's wrong in the world today, when we look out at the world, and all that's wrong in the world today, guess what? God's going to make it all right one day. Don't live in fear. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this announcement to the shepherds and what it means for us today. Because we don't need to live in fear. We can rejoice and be glad in what the Lord has done. Lord, what we celebrate at Christmas changes everything. If you had not sent your son to be the savior of the world, if you were not with us, we might as well shut out the lights and go home. We don't have really anything to live for in this world. But you have intervened. God, I pray right now that you would especially be close to that one here who has events going on in their life that they need to know that you are near to them right now. And the scripture says you're near to the brokenhearted. Lord, help them to see your fingerprints all over their lives. And that you're a providential God and you're a good God. If you've allowed something, it is ultimately for the good of those who love you. Again, not saying it's good in and of itself. But you can bring good out of it. So Lord, that one who needs you, help them to lay everything at your feet today. And say, Lord, life is too big for me to live it on my own. I need you directing my steps. And Lord, show them, even in small ways, that you're with them. For that one today who needs to come to Christ for the first time. And say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. 
be my Lord and Savior. Change everything about me. I pray that they would run to you this morning. And if they do so, they will find you with open arms ready to receive. We pray these things.